The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. Barbara Butcher was early in her recovery from alcoholism when she found an unexpected lifeline, a job at the medical examiner's office in New York City. The second woman ever hired for the role of death investigator in Manhattan, she was the first to last more than three months. The work was gritty, demanding, morbid, and sometimes dangerous. And she stayed for 23 years. Hi, everybody. This is Victoria Moran, and welcome to the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you. And this is a very, very special, special podcast, and I'll be telling you why at the end. But it's also special because I'm talking to this fascinating woman. Haven't you always wondered what it's really like in the coroner's office? We see it on TV but we don't really know in regular life what it would be like to be there. Barbara Butcher knows, and she's going to share so much of that with us today. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much, Victoria. What a pleasure to see you. Well, or it hear is a, you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to see you too. And I have to tell everybody because I always feel real friendly uh, with my listeners. I think we're all a great big wonderful sorority, but. I need to let you know that Barbara used to be my neighbor. She was across the hall and down the hall a little bit. And just before the pandemic, my husband was in an accident. He fell onto the subway tracks and was quite severely injured. He had a massively broken jaw that was wired together and came home from the hospital and needed another three weeks of healing and would go back and have that all taken apart and he would have his jaw back and ability to speak and eat, except the pandemic started and everything closed and there was no way to get his jaw unwired. And I mentioned this to Barbara and she said, I've worked on jaw surgeries. I think I can do that. So I called the 
plastic surgeon who would have otherwise done this. And he laughed and laughed. He said, do you know what a crazy request that would be under ordinary circumstances? But these aren't ordinary circumstances. Let her do it. Call me if you need help. So in front of a window to have good light and in the presence of our companion animals, Barbara was able to give my husband his jaw back. So that's a story that I will remember for a good long time. Oh, yes. Those were some crazy days. Um, I did everything but surgery in, in the building those days. Well, was speaking, crazy. yeah, and you must know crazy very well. I was looking here at some of the statistics about what you did when you were in the medical examiner's office. You investigated more than 5,500 deaths, 680 of them homicides, and you worked on mass disasters, including the 2004 tsunami, the London underground bombing, and 9-11. How do you have the wherewithal and the calm attention to be able to deal with something that massive? Well... I am a very strong and very strange girl. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the strong or the strange, whichever uh, comes first. Well, you know, I spent, oh, 20 something years, uh, 23 years at the medical examiner's office. In the first half of my career, I was a death investigator, or I go to scenes of death all over New York City and see the most fascinating lives. I mean, it's not just about death. It's about seeing how people live while investigating their deaths. And after many years of this, I was, um, I guess you would say, emotionally crippled from being, you know, one has to, to detach from emotions in order to do this kind of work. You, If you walk into a scene where a woman and her child have been murdered, of course, you're going to be awash in horror and grief and, and terror and anxiety. But you can't help people if you're feeling like that. So I quick drew a curtain down, detached from my emotions, and did my work, investigated. And in time, I learned that you can't shut down one emotion. They all go down. And uh, it very adversely affected my, my life. And then along came 9-11. I think some power above said, gee, Barbara, if you're having trouble with one death at a time, let me give you 3,000 at a time. See how you deal with that. And some people say, well, uh, I've heard it said that one death is a tragedy and 10,000 deaths is a statistic. But if you're crawling through smoking, burning rubble to find body parts and you find a desk calendar that says uh, lunch with Jim, Tuesday, 9-11, or a graduation picture from grammar school, or the, the, the desk set I found with a, a golf ball and a pen attached to it, souvenir of a hole in one. That's not a statistic. That is a human life. So every one of those thousands of people is an individual case. So in a sense to me, there is no such thing as mass disaster. Every death is a disaster. 
And especially when I went to Thailand after the 2004 tsunami, 235,000 people killed. Each one of those people is a spirit, is a life, is a universe. And uh, I learned that pretty quickly. Whoa. So let's go back some. How did you happen to get this job? What was your background? What was your training? What did you know that qualified you? Actually, it's from being a drunk. <laughs> I'll, I'll back that up, actually. Um, I did have a very good education. I was a physician assistant working in surgery and preventive medicine. And um, I had a master's degree from Columbia in public health, and I was doing just fine. But then I started drinking, and uh, that didn't go too well. So there were some up and down periods of my life where I kind of lost everything, lost my good job lost my apartment, and I drank more. And then it got really bad. I hit bottom, and I was fortunate enough to get sober. I went to AA and, uh, and got sober. And one of the things that you get is help when you're an alcoholic. People are, are kind, and they want to help you, especially, believe it or not, New York State. They give you rehabilitation services, like, uh, oh, I got vocational services. They admitted me to this program called uh, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. And there they gave me the Minnesota multiphasic Briggs-Myers preferential personality blah, blah tests. And at the end of all the tests, my counselor said, Barbara, you should either be a poultry veterinarian or a coroner. I said, poultry, why poultry? So, well, you're good with diagnostics and treatment. You should be in some form of healthcare. Animals would be good for you, but not puppies and kittens. They'll break your heart. You get too emotionally involved. He said, chickens, beady little eyes. Nobody cares about chickens. Nobody Except gets attached. Vegans, I will put that exactly. in. Exactly. <laughs> so I do care about chickens. But um, I said, you know what? I'll take dead people. What about coroner? And he said, call the one person in New York City who you think has the best job in the world and asked if, ask if you can come in and talk to them. So I did. I called Dr. Charles Hirsch, chief medical examiner for the city. He said, sure, come on in. Well, we talked. We had a great time. And um, it turns out they had just been approved for a new investigator position. And they said, how'd you like to work for us? Wow. Don't you and love serendipity? That was a that was a god shot. That was a dream come true. Me, uh, who used to dissect animals as a tiny child to figure out why how they died. You know, the, the kids in the neighborhood would bring me um, roadkill. I'd say, "Oh, you see this possum? How he's got little wavy black lines across his back. He was run over by a car." And I was a baby coroner from way back. So. Wow. So, so how does it start? Out. What happens when you just show up on your first day in the medical examiner's office? First, I want to ask you about the smell. Just based on the few times I have been in labs in colleges and medical schools where people are working on cadavers, that's something to get used to. Is it mm -hmm. like that? No, it's nothing like that. That's a formalin smell. Uh, formaldehyde or formalin, and it's it's very rank, it's very uh, astringent. But the smell of a decomposing body 
especially in the summer, is like nothing you have ever smelled before. Like a strawberry milkshake made with garlic, like 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 vomit and feces and rot and decay and bad things. It is a hideous, hideous smell. And uh, put my as, as Dr. Hirsch used to say, it's the sweet smell of job security. It's just, we're all going back to nature and this is how we do it, Barbara. So get used to it. Um, I never did, of course. But showing up on day one, they said, well, you've got a good background for this work, but we're going to train the hell out of you. You're going to go out on every single case, every single day for three months. Now, this is back in 1992 when we were getting 2,400 homicides a year. Now, you barely get 400 homicides a year. But then can you imagine every day I was investigating homicides, suicides, accidents, naturals. And I went to the uh, NYPD school, their homicide school. I went to the FBI Academy for a, a two-week course in, in crime scene investigation, um, and et cetera. I always had continuing education, but the real way I learned how to investigate was on the street with seasoned investigators and the detectives of NYPD. And it was fun. Oh, so exciting. So the first time you saw a murder victim, I presume, was on the job. Mm -hmm. What did that do to you? Nothing. Nothing. I was detached. I, uh, they took me down that first day when I went to visit Dr. Hirsch. They threw me into a room with a couple of investigators, a couple of guys. And they said, uh, yeah, hey, you want to see some pictures? Sure. They started showing me scene photos of hideous deaths. And I was determined not to get upset, of course. I just said, oh, that's interesting. Look at that. What does that uh, pattern mean there, that little blood spray? Then they took me down to the uh, autopsy room. And there was a guy with a bunch of knife uh, stab wounds in his chest and a knife sticking out of the right side near the shoulder. I said, oh, look at that. How interesting the pattern, uh, the way the stab wounds are grouped. Looks like the uh, perpetrator was probably right-handed. Is that right? And the doctor doing the, the uh, autopsy, the pathologist said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, here, notice the angle of the blade. And I just was totally cool, totally absorbed in the science and the forensics of it. Didn't get upset at all. Then. But <laughs> soon enough, bad things happened. Um, one of the next cases I saw, oh God, I even hate to bring it up, but it's real life. An eight-year-old girl who had been raped and smothered and thrown in a garbage dump in the Bronx. And the doctor doing the uh, autopsy, Dr. Jackie Lee, I said, Doc, how do you do this? How do you do this every day and then go home and live a life? She said, Barbara, you... If you're going to do this job, you must every day surround yourself with things of beauty, art and love and music and, and dancing and everything that's beautiful and creative in life. That's the only way you can oppose the death and destruction that we see here. And she was absolutely right. Did I take that lesson? Not right away. No, no. <laughs> it took me a while to realize, yes, she is absolutely right. And, and what, when I 
when I did, when I realized that, I got a little house in the country up in the Catskills, cheap little place that I could fix up. And I got a dog and two cats. And I played in the yard with my animals and my my little buddies. And I uh, I planted trees and flowers and I created beauty for myself. And that made all the difference in the world. That is such good advice for just dealing with regular life. Those of <laughs> us who don't have to deal with death every day, but we all have to deal with life every day. So I love what she told you. Surround yourself with art, music, love, beauty, creativity. What a good idea. Mm -hmm. So how was it when you went to a, you were a recovering alcoholic, so not cocktail parties, but uh, <laughs> mocktail parties. Sure. And somebody asked about your job. You know, most people can say, oh, I had the most interesting experience last week working on that tax return. <laughs> you can't really say that. So yeah. how was your life outside work? Well, you know, people, of course, at any cocktail party, they say, what do you do? I said, well, actually, I'm a death investigator for the med medical examiner's office. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Wow, so interesting. So, yes, it's very interesting. Then they'd say, what's the most disgusting thing you'd ever see? And that's, to me, is a little disrespectful, not to me, but to the dead. What makes you think that I would stand here and tell you about somebody's death, that it was disgusting? That's, that's, uh, unethical. Um, we've got to show respect for everyone, including the dead. So I'd say, well, you know what? Sometimes things were messy. Sometimes they were scary. But my job is to get justice for the decedent who can no longer speak for themselves and to get answers for their families. So that's what I do. Then they'd be like, oh, oh okay, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell them horror stories. Well, I'm not asking for a horror story, but I'm asking for a really good story. Okay. There was a case in which you had your arm in a cast. Ah, yes, the booby trap. Yeah, yes, tell us about that. Yeah, I um, oh, it was one of my early cases. Uh, I got a call that there was a suicide uptown uh, that a man was hanging, and I was a little irritated irritable because my I had had a tendon I cut a tendon with a saw you know trying to do woodworking I'm not very good at that stuff but I try and I cut a tendon got surgery and my arm was in a cast and I was out of sick time so I had to work and they said well you got to go do this case and I went uptown bitching and moaning of course and uh, got to the scene and the police officer told me it looks like the electricity's been cut off poor guy probably didn't pay the bill but he's hanging in there over by the bedroom. And I went in and with his little half dead flashlight and my little flashlight, I started examining the man. He was a heavy set fellow, just, you know, hanged himself from a, from a pipe overhead. And uh, the apartment was quite dingy, pitch black, uh, no electric at all. And um, I, you know, looked around, there was nothing unusual. It seemed to be a suicide. And then, what I would normally do is take a buck knife from my equipment case and cut him down. And the way I do that is to hold on to the ligature with my left hand and cut above it with the right so that he doesn't crash to the ground. I can guide him a little bit. 
and let him down easy. But I couldn't do it this time. And, hmm, all right, well, no problem. I'll ask the morgue attendants when they come to pick him up. I'll ask them to do it. And I left, and I had taken all my pictures and everything. Back then, we used Polaroid cameras. Nice bright flash, and you know, instantly we had Polaroids to hand to the medical examiner so that they could see the scene. And I was writing my report and looking at the pictures, and I noticed that the ligature was a uh, one of those orange extension cords that you use outdoors. And uh, that's a good thing to hang yourself with. But then in the next picture, I saw that it was plugged into a wall socket. I thought, hmm, why is that? Why would he plug it in? And he's got no power anyway. Then it hit me. Oh, damn it. I think this is a booby trap case. I called the police officer and I said, go to the lamps and screw in the light bulbs and see if there's light. He came back and said, yeah, there is light. There is power. He just unscrewed all the, uh, the bulbs in the house. And then I understood. He rigged it so that whoever cut him down would be electrocuted. Now, why would he do that? Because he was an angry suicide. I kind of noticed that suicides fell into two categories. The angry people who jumped from buildings, you know, endangering pedestrians below, causing a huge splash, a huge noise. People who were so pained, so bereft that they had to kill themselves, and yet they were so angry that no one helped them, no one saved them. Then there's the quiet people who just take a few pills and go to sleep after a broken heart or something. And I figured this is one of those angry suicides. He was pissed at the world, like like the people who go to um, these horrible school shootings where they go and shoot people and then kill themselves. Why don't you just kill yourself and be done with it? Why take others? Why cause suffering? Anger. It's the only thing I can think of. But... The serendipity, the what I call a God shot, the fact that my hand was in a cast, something I'd been bitching about, it saved my life, didn't it? So and you your intuition, know. because yeah. somebody else could have been in a cast and not figured that out. That's right. That's right. I was wow. a good investigator. <laughs> and you've written a really good book. So everybody listening, the book is What the Dead Know. Learning about life as a New York City death investigator. So I want to ask you, Barbara, going from the medical examiner's office where everything is exciting and every day there's something else going on multiple times a day to being a writer. I always <laughs> think of a guy back in the Kansas City area where I grew up, they did an article about him in the Sunday supplement to the Kansas City Star. And they showed the little outbuilding that he had built in his yard. And it had a roll down shade that said when he rolled it down, go away. So the writer's life and the life you came from seem really different. So tell us about your writer's life. And that Tell us how you like it. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, as you see toward the end of the book, um, I lost my job when a new, uh, by the time after 23 years, I had risen to chief of staff for the agency. When a new mayor comes in, they get to 
replace the top people, don't they? And so all my years of experience, all the knowledge out the window was Bill de Blasio. And uh, I was beyond crushed. I lost my career, my love, my passion, and my identity. Because I made that mistake that so many people do is being a human doing rather than a human being. I thought I was what I did. And if anyone had asked me, oh, hi, tell me about yourself. I'd say, hi, I'm Barbara Butcher, Chief of Staff at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. (laughs) Nothing else, uh, because that's who I was. And uh, so losing that job resulted in a severe and crashing depression that damn near killed me. And I was lucky. I got help. Um, You know, all those suicides I had seen over the years that used to upset me so much that they could have been helped with medication or if somebody had done something. I was fortunate. Um, People helped me. And I I came out of it. And then I was doing consulting work, uh, working mostly for families who did not like the ruling of the medical examiner for one of their family members who was killed or didn't like what the police had determined. And they asked me to look into it privately. So I did that for a while. And then came COVID and everything crashed. My, My business died out. You know, there's no more court cases. And uh, things were kind of bleak. And then I thought, you know, all these stories I've wanted to tell over the years, all the strange cases I've seen and the lives I've lived and seen, I want to tell those stories. And I might die during this COVID, so I better get them out now. And I just started writing. And um, I I found it enormously gratifying. I, uh, I didn't realize that writing is a not just an expression or communication, but a craft. And so I got a coach. I went to a writing teacher, and she helped me to to understand the craft. And I really, really enjoyed it. But then I got lonely. <laughs> it is so damn lonely. Mostly in the rewrite phase. You know, <laughs> you've already said what you have to say. And then along comes a copy editor who says, excuse me, but um, according to the New York Times, three phone calls were made that day before the murder occurred. And I say, no, there were two phone calls. No, the New York Times says three. Well, I say two, damn it. And I was there. So I ought to know. So (laughs) that kind of thing where you're just sitting there going over it and over and over again and again, doing rewrites and copy editing. So, um, yeah, that was very lonely for me. Uh, but I, you know, I guess it's a comfort that it was lonely for everybody back then. During COVID, we were all sad and, and sitting home and, and feeling just terribly lonely. So I was in good company. Well, writing always puts a writer in good company. <laughs> Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. 
Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So, Barbara, you have this incredible book, What the Dead Know, an absolute page turner. And you've got a really great publisher, Simon & Schuster, for your very first book. Do you know how remarkable that is? Yes, I do. I know how very, very lucky I am. Um, And I credit that to good friends. Now, when I was doing consulting work, one of the things I did was help authors who were writing mysteries or, or television writers. They'd come and ask me about, you know, real forensics, give them lessons so that they could make a good mystery. And uh, when uh, one woman, Kate White, she was the editor of Cosmo for many, many years and uh, now a mystery writer and um, uh, a, a just a, a terrific friend. She said, Barbara, if you're going to tell the stories, tell them right. Got to get you a good agent. And she did. She had a dinner party for me where she invited agents. <laughs> that's a good friend. That's a great friend. She had a group of agents in the room so that they could hear me talk about my adventures. And uh, they said, sure, I'd love to represent you. So I, I selected the one I was most comfortable with. And um she sold my my book proposal, and uh, I am so aware of how very, very lucky I am. It's all about good friendship. It really is, and I just think you've illustrated that so beautifully for us. So having seen more death than most people ever will, and certainly in contemporary American culture, most of us are very, very separated from death. Some people approach their own death never having been there for anybody else's. I think about several years ago, I was working with Tibetan refugee families, and my boyfriend at the time had gone over for a a trip to Nepal that I was not on, and the father of a family that we had been working with shared with him the sad news that the six-year-old daughter had died. And my friend said, oh, I'm so very sorry. What did she die of? And the father said, oh, she didn't die of anything. She just died. And my first thought, of course, was, oh, thank goodness we live in this more scientific culture and we know what people die of. But then as I thought a little bit more about it, I thought, I wonder if the acceptance is easier to come to when you have a simpler way of seeing it. So how do you look at death today? Um, you know, that's, it's such an interesting statement of, of, of people's beliefs. Um, when I was in Thailand, I saw the Buddhist uh, way of, of handling death, and it was remarkably beautiful. I mean, here they were confronted with thousands of bodies rotting in the sun that they had to put in trenches, and yet they just knew that it was the transition and they sent their friends and family on their way to whatever is next with blessings and love and then went about their lives. Um, I'm sure there was grief, of course, but it was bolstered or, or mitigated by a, a sense of serenity and peace. Um, and I try, I know it's very hard having grown up in Western culture and a Catholic religion, I try very hard to 
think about that way of death, this transition. But now my mom just died uh, two, two, three weeks ago. And that was very hard for me to accept. Um, she was quite ready to go. Uh, she had been healthy and then suddenly got sick. She was 92 years old. She said, Barbara, I'm exhausted. I want to get the hell out of here. And I said, Mom, well, yeah, I can't, I can't hurry it for you. She said, yeah, well, I'm not going to hang around here. This is, this is crazy. I want to go. And uh, she did. She went. <laughs> and, um, then, but I was so sad and, and missed her so much. And that was all selfish. It was all about me. Um, she wanted to go. She went. And good for her. She had done everything she wanted to do. And now, boom. And all she wanted was to see my book published. She said, <laughs> you know, um, she did want to see the TV show, but that's, you know, how things, these things take years to get off the, the ground. So um, I, I, I tried to look upon it with the fact that she made the transition. Oh. Whatever's next, she's there and she's happy. Oh, well, you described that beautifully. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. You said something interesting that you said to her, I understand you're ready to leave. I can't hurry it for you. Well, my understanding is that in six states, possibly seven, mm -hmm. people can hurry it. Sure. What do you think of this idea of death with dignity and where it is legal some places for people who are ready to go to get assistance in doing that? I think it's wonderful. Um, I personally uh, could not do it because I, I I have this belief that I am meant to learn lessons and do all kinds of things before it's time to go. And so I don't want to interfere with the schedule that was made for me by some all-knowing being. <laughs> so I, I couldn't personally do that. However, I think it's uh, it's the choice of the individual. If you're ready, then it's by all means, you should be able to go. And it is ludicrous of the state to tell an individual how long they can live or it, it's, it's, it's abhorrent to me that the state should decide how long you live and when you die. Um, so I don't, I don't believe in state interference in the form of capital punishment or in stopping suicides. They got to mind the damn business. Yes. <laughs> I was interested when I first saw the list of states, most of them you think of as being very liberal. I think it's Vermont and Oregon and some of those. Mm. And then there's New Jersey, which seems so close <laughs> and so kind of middle America. Yeah. But have you ever lived in New Jersey? I have not. Uh, it's... <laughs> no, I'm just making a bad joke. Um uh, you know, uh, yeah, I guess New Jersey is a state of 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 uh, middle America, but also of um, a certain amount of libertarianism where the individual yes. is, you know, should have their their right to choose whatever yes. that is. Yeah. Well, I, I think like a New Jersey person in that way. So I want to ask you, Barbara, you talked about this higher power and that you believe there's a schedule designed for you by some force beyond our knowing. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your spiritual life and tell us about the one that got you through 
those early years in the medical examiner's office, which was also getting you through the early years of sobriety. That's quite a lot to have to juggle together. And then tell us about how it is now. Yeah. Um, I am not a religious person by any means. Um, I don't follow any particular precept or protocol. But um, in AA, I learned that there is, it is beneficial to just think of a higher power. It could be anything you want, a God or a universe or a sun or a star or a moon, whatever. But there is, in the AA belief, there is something greater and wiser than us as individuals. And that seems sensible to me. I don't think that everything just happened. I think there's some form of creation or starting. And whatever that is, it is beyond my silly little mortal brain. No, it's not a silly little brain. It's just a good little brain, but it's small. <laughs> it cannot begin to understand the universe. You know, sometimes at night I stand outside and look at the sky and I think, holy shit, there's so much out there. Oh my God, I'm scared. It's uh, I think there's even a term for it. Universal, universal overwhelming powerlessness or something like that. Anyway, so so that belief got me through uh, not drinking. The belief that maybe I could be something better, that there was something better out there for me. And then those early days of the medical examiner's office, um, you know, there was a, a case where I went out on uh, uh, up at the bulkhead near the roof uh, in the projects. Young girl had been raped and murdered and set on fire. And my heart was sick. I, I The detectives in there with me, we were, we were all just heart sick. None of the usual banter or, you know, light conversation. It was just quiet, just quiet. And then one of the cops pulled me aside and said, hey, Barbara, we're all going to go out for a drink after this. So, you know, we really need it. You want to come with us? And, oh, God, I wanted to come so bad. I wanted to go to that bar. I wanted to hang out with the guys. And we wouldn't talk about the case, of course. We'd talk about police gossip and, you know, who's seeing who, and things like that. And we'd just have a great time and forget. But I couldn't do that. So I went up on the roof. I was up in East Harlem. 106th Street, and I just looked up at the sky, and uh, I just thought, oh, could you give me a hand with this? I don't know who I'm addressing exactly, but whatever's out there, could you give me a hand with this? And nothing happened, of course, but nothing happened, of course. I didn't drink. I didn't fall apart. Nothing happened happened so something happened <laughs> ah. so, um and today i i feel pretty much the same way um i don't particularly pray but sometimes i'll just look up and say hey what's next let me know what i can do and you know there's obviously a lot i can do and whenever it comes to me an opportunity to do something i do it i don't have any idea how I'm being guided in the world, if it's, if it's a, you know, a spiritual thing, or it's just pure chance. But I often think, how the hell did I get so lucky? Um, I have everything. I had a wonderful career. 
I have a, a, a book that I enjoyed so much doing and, and that enabled me to get some of these, so many of these things out, these stories, these feelings. I have family, I have friends, I have good health and uh, a home. What the hell else could you want? Well, more, you know, if only I could eat food and not gain a lot of weight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, small miracles we can expect. Huge ones only come every now and then. Yeah. So, Barbara, you've told all these wonderful stories about life. And I am going to ask you before we leave uh, for your very best story. You can certainly give us that one between now and when the book arrives. But these stories, as universal as they are about life and death, they're also quintessentially New York. So I want to know about you and your relationship to this city. The word used in your description was that this job was gritty. Well, New York City is gritty. So how are we different and unique, if indeed we are? Oh, I think New York is... You know, it's terrible, but it's home. There's something about this city. I can't leave it. Um, It's dirty. It's sometimes dangerous. It's noisy. It's, and then, and then sometimes I'll, I'll pause in the middle of the sidewalk and say, damn it, there's garbage everywhere. I'm being harassed by, by people who bump into me and yell at me on the subway. Why do I ever stay in a place like this? Why don't I go to Florida to a retirement community where everything is clean and there's flowers and people have good manners? Then I think, nah, <laughs> I can't do that. There's something about New York that draws us here. There's it, 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 it makes me proud to be a fighter. If you can make it in this city, then you're a fighter. You know, you, it's just, it's just something so wonderful about it. Also, I'm kind of a loner. I like to be left alone, but surrounded by people. And so I get to do that. I get to be alone, not talk, but have everybody all around me. And that way somebody can hear me scream if I need help. (laughs) But my favorite story, one of my favorite stories is a quintessential New York story. And that is... um, that I got a call from a detective one day. He said, Barbara, how'd you like to go on a little adventure in the caves beneath Manhattan? We're going to go look for a homicide victim. Well, hell yeah, I'm going. I love a Huckleberry Finn adventure story. So I went over to uh, on the uh, near where the Hudson Yards are now. It was the old abandoned Amtrak tunnels beneath Manhattan, deep in the bedrock of the city. And I, there was a broken fence there, and there was a bunch of cops, some emergency service unit guys, a couple of detectives. And standing between two detectives was a very pretty young woman, very pretty, very remarkable looking, actually, probably about 22 years old. And they said, Barbara, this is Jessica. Jessica is going to show us where there's a murder victim here in the caves beneath the city. I said, okay, great, let's go. And we start walking in, and one of the detectives tells me, you know, Barbara, she's a sex worker. She's a real good one, you know, high up there on the ladder. She even speaks Japanese. She was in Tokyo living there, you know, with all kinds of high rollers. But um, 
she was with some guy, he gets busted for cocaine and she's standing there carrying the bag. So she's trying to do a plea deal with us. She's going to show us where there's a homicide victim. I said, okay, great. And as um, we're walking deep into the tunnels and the darkness and the, the bedrock of the city, I'm talking to young Jessica and she is a fascinating girl. She's very well-spoken, very intelligent, and has that kind of laser focus on whoever she's talking to that makes you feel special. And the, certainly the cops were enjoying her quite a bit. She was lovely. And she, you know, telling me how much she loves New York. Tokyo was fun, but New York is home. And soon she takes us through the caves. And I see that people live in caves that are actually furnished. There are beds desks, little tables, and candlelight. No electricity, of course. But people live in small caves beneath the tent, beneath New York. And there's even a bookshelf. One guy's got all these paperbacks. And he had a poster on a, on a ledge in the rock. It was for Dubonnet, an old French poster. And I had the same one at home. So <laughs> another guy, we passed his cave and he um he had a calendar on the wall and he was crossing off days thinking what the hell is he waiting for what's next but eventually jessica got us into this huge area that had um, looked like parties had happened there liquor bottles everywhere food little uh, overturned crates and she said this is it this is where the bongs are and sure enough we started hunting in the ledges and found a skeleton but it was a big, heavy skeleton. The femurs, the, the thigh bones looked very heavy. I thought, wow, this must be a very strange, deformed person. And then Jessica said to the detective, could you excuse me a moment? I have to pee. And he walked, she said, I'll go over there on the, the, the side of the cave. And he walked her over. And suddenly I heard, damn it, get, what the hell, get back here, get back here. And it was the detective yelling as she ran away through the caves because he was such a gentleman that when she said to him, could you please turn around? I don't want to pee in front of you. He did. <laughs> and she took off and she escaped. <laughs> well, Danny got Danny, the detective, he got disciplined for you know letting a suspect get away. And uh, I got embarrassed when I found out that these big skeletal bones that I thought were human turned out to be from a cow. <laughs> so she got away uh, and she was found a few days later in one of those, you know, hot sheet motels over on the West side. But I just loved her spunky spirit. <laughs> I thought she was terrific. And, a great. Oh, go ahead. And, and I learned something about how people live in New York. You know, we're not all in apartments. We're in plenty of different places. <laughs> Have any of the stories that you worked on been appropriated by law and order? Mm. You know, actually, some of the cases I've done, yes, because they they call it ripped from the headlines. They do <laughs> they do true cases and they fictionalize them. So yes, a few of my you know uh, standard homicides have been have been on law and order. Yep. Uh, 
That's so cool. Well, finally, Barbara, just as we wind down, and I know this is fascinating listeners, the book is What the Dead Know, Learning About Life as a New York City Death Investigator, Barbara Butcher. And you can go to her website, barbarabutcherauthor.com, and also uh, What the Dead Know on Facebook and on Instagram. And we'll put all that in the show notes at victoriamoran.com. So final question. This book is, as the subtitle indicates, about learning lessons from life in dealing with death every day. So what's your very favorite lesson, best lesson, whether it's easy or not? The most important lesson and the the hardest one is that every single life counts. Every single life. There's no such thing as, you know, uh, what they used to call public service homicides or throwaway deaths. No, it doesn't matter. Every single person is a universe. They're all connected. They all form history. They all form families. And each one matters from the smallest to the biggest. And when you come to the medical examiner's office, everyone gets treated exactly the same with respect. That is a lovely thing to know. Makes me proud to be a New Yorker, albeit an adopted one, as so many of us are. So, Barbara, wonderful author, great neighbor back when we were neighbors. It's just been such a pleasure, such a joy. I know you are working on a novel now, so we'll be looking for that when the time comes. Mm -hmm. And just blessings on, on your life and on your writing. And thank you for taking this time with us today. Thank you very, very much. It was a pleasure. Ah, Stay safe. (laughs) Thank you so very much. And listeners, I said I would share something with you at the end. And this is what I'm sharing. That is that this incredible interview with Barbara Butcher is the swan song for meetings with remarkable women. Because by popular demand, I am going back to my roots and resurrecting the Main Street Vegan podcast. And those of you who have been around and listened to whatever I do for a long time, first, thank you. Thank you so much for that. We did Main Street Vegan every Wednesday afternoon for nearly 10 years. We did 475 episodes. And then when Unity Online Radio decided that it was no longer going to be, I moved away from that and was approached by the wonderful people at Mind Body Spirit FM about doing something with them. And I thought, gosh, what do I really want to do? Who do I want to talk to at this time in my life? And I thought, you know what? I want to talk with incredible women. I want to talk about women whose lives inspire me and I know would inspire other people. And that's what we've been doing every couple of weeks for the past year. It has been a joy and an uplift and a delight. But we're going to go back. 
because so many people write, I miss Main Street Vegan. I need Main Street Vegan. Main Street Vegan supported me. Main Street Vegan uplifted me. Main Street Vegan was my friend. Well, you know what? You're going to be reunited with your friend. <laughs> so starting on September 14th, we will do the first return episode of Main Street Vegan right here on Body, Mind, Spirit FM. I said that backwards, mindbodyspirit.fm, <laughs> pardon me. And on September 14th, our guest will be Colleen Patrick Goudreau. And yes, she could also have been a meeting with a remarkable woman. <laughs> I get that. Colleen Patrick Goudreau is the joyful vegan and probably the most beloved or certainly one of the most beloved people in the vegan universe. So we'll be talking with her in just a couple of weeks and I'll give you the preview of um, what's coming after that. So posting on September 28th will be my interview with Bridget Gemi. And she is an expert on food and vegan food. She is the uh, vegan family kitchen. And she's going to talk, among other things, about how to be motivated to cook when you just don't want to. You're tired. You just came home from work. Or like I say to myself, I've been cooking for decades. I want somebody to cook for me, except nobody's volunteering. <laughs> so Bridget will help us with all of that posting on September 28th. On October 12th, ooh, this is exciting. We're going to have Dr. Alona Day. You know her from the classic documentary, Forks Over Knives. And she has a new book out about plant-based living and being incredibly healthy and living vibrantly forever and beyond. Obviously not forever, as we just talked about today, but living vibrantly as long as we're here. Dr. Day on October 12th and on October 26th, Dotsie Bausch, Olympic silver medal cyclist, and Alexandra Paul. She was an actor. She was on Baywatch. And um, just a few months ago, she was acquitted. She was uh, charged with some violation of something or other for trying to save an animal. And that makes her a hero in my book. So Dotsie and Alexandra on October 26th. And then we'll just move on from there with all kinds of amazing people, amazing projects, and do let us know who you want to hear about. So our Facebook group on um, um, the has been the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group. We're going to be changing back to Main Street Vegan. And if you're a member, you'll still be a member. And if you want to be a member, just go on to Facebook and uh, look up Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners. So I hope you have enjoyed this year and the remarkable women that we've spoken with and that you will stick around for Main Street Vegan. And if you know somebody who used to be a Main Street Vegan fan and they just weren't interested in talking with remarkable women, let them know that Main Street Vegan is coming back stronger than ever. That's how life is, isn't it? Things change, they change back, they change again. They just kind of go around and come around. Pretty sweet, pretty special. We're here for a reason.
Okay, everybody, God bless you. Thank you for listening. These episodes will live online forever. So anyone that you missed or that you want to listen to again, you can easily find. And uh, for now, please go out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy, at MainStreetVegan.com. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.